This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. Well, this was the ultimate week, the week of all weeks here in calendar year 2020, which has been an unbelievable year. Everybody will agree. Every week, action filled. But this week was the creme de la creme, the kingpin of all action. We had an election, November 3rd. Actually, we had an election that started a long time before that because of mail-in ballots and As we talk on this weekend, you know what? Uh, The election feels like it's still going on, right? They're still counting ballots in some states. But let me just sum up uh, the way things shook down here in Michigan. It looks like Joe Biden won the state by approximately 50 to 48 percent over Donald Trump, maybe two and a half percent. The final numbers may not be totally clear even now, but that's about the margin. I think that will be very hard to overcome for the Trump forces. Then in the U.S. Senate race, Gary Peters, it looks like, has held on to win re-election against John James as Republican challenger. It looks to me like that's about a two-point race, about 50 to 48 percent. Trump and James tracking pretty well with Peters and Biden. On the other hand, uh, we look beyond that. uh, Some developments here in the state, I think, were really kind of surprising and uh, enlightening and uh, rejuvenating, uh, perhaps, for some parties' uh, fortunes. Let me just mention, the Republicans have got to feel really good about holding on to the state House of Representatives Uh, They went into the election with 58 members. Democrats had 52. Democrats had to pick up four seats to get a majority for the first time in a decade. And it looked like with the polls going into the election that Joe Biden was going to win by a big enough margin that he'd have some coattails and drag some down-ballot Democrats into office with him. But it did not happen. Uh, The presidential race, as you know, I just said, was very close. And Republicans actually knocked off a couple of Democratic incumbents. In Bay City, a Democrat, Brian Elder, in the 80, excuse me, the 96th House District, and Democrat Cheryl Kennedy in the uh, 48th House District, Eastern Genesee County, were defeated by Republican challengers. Republicans lost two seats. One open seat down in the Portage, Kalamazoo area, and the other one in southern Oakland County, also an open seat now held by a Republican uh, in the Novi area. They lost that. So each side won two seats, and that means a net no change. It's still 58-52. So for the next two years, Republicans are seemingly going to control, barring deaths or resignation, both the House and the Senate, uh, during Gretchen Whitmer's last two years of her first term, and maybe her only term, who knows, uh, just as was the case these past two years. Now, what else happened? Uh, Gretchen Whitmer says uh, she's not interested in getting a Joe Biden administration appointment. 
Uh, she says, quote, I don't have any desire or intent to go to a cabinet. I have every intent to stay here and get the state back to work, unquote. Well, of course, she has to be asked to be in the cabinet. But I noticed that former Governor James Blanchard, a big Gretchen Whitmer supporter, said, you know what? There is no cabinet job in Washington for any administration that equals the prominence and the importance and the satisfaction and the challenge of being governor of Michigan. So uh, obviously he feels, and I think probably Gretchen Whitmer also feels, uh, governor of Michigan is a pretty good gig. Now, what else happened around the state? Two congressional races over in West Michigan, the 3rd District, the 6th District, where in one case Fred Upton, a longtime incumbent, trying to hold on to his seat, he did by a very big margin, a much bigger margin than he won by two years ago, even though polls showed that supposedly he was in trouble and it might be very close and that he might lose. And then you had an open seat race in the third district around Grand Rapids, Kent County, going down to Calhoun and Battle Creek. And that was open because Justin Amash, the longtime uh, five-term incumbent uh, who changed his parties uh, from Republican to Independent a year ago, did not run again. Uh, That seat was run by Peter Meyer, uh, the Republican nominee, son of the grocery store chain, uh, over uh, Hillary Skolton, a Democrat who made a very strong run. And the polls again showed that that race was supposed to be a cliffhanger and that Skolton could actually win. But I think Meyer won handily by at least 6%, maybe as much as 10%. It's not clear yet. Now, here is the big win for the Democrats in the state, in my estimation. I don't see how anybody could deny this. They got control of the state Supreme Court. There was an open seat running for the Supreme Court this year because one of the incumbent Republican justices, Steve Markman, could not run again because he'd reached the mandatory retirement age of 70, couldn't run again open seat, and a woman named Elizabeth Welch, an attorney in private practice in East Grand Rapids, one of the two Democratic nominees, won that. Second place, she finished to her running mate, Chief Justice Bridget Mary McCormick, also a Democrat. She led the ticket. Uh, Welch was second. The top two get elected. There were about seven people running, including two Republican nominees, but they fell short. So the Democrats have flipped control of the state Supreme Court from 4-3 Republican to 4-3 Democrat. Uh, Local races, some very prominent and some with repercussions at the state level. For instance, two sitting state senators won other offices. Peter Lucido, a Republican in Macomb County, won the Macomb County prosecuting attorney race. So he will be resigning his seat in the Senate sometime in the next few weeks, and there's going to have to be a special election to fill his seat in late winter or spring. Also, State Senator Peter McGregor in Kent County ran for Kent County Treasurer and won. So he is going to have to resign his seat in the State Senate. That reduces the Republican majority from 2216 to 2016, Uh, They'll only have a four-seat edge, at least for the time being, until these special elections can be held. Uh, Other uh, issues 
that should be discussed. Actually, ballot issues, two ballot issues this year. A lot of people didn't even know about them going into the voting booth, and they found out there was Proposal 1, which involved uh, allocating or reallocating money from the Natural Resources Trust Fund. Very complex, hard to understand, big environmental implications. That passed overwhelmingly, 80 to 20 percent roughly. And Proposal 2 also passed about 80 to 20 uh, percent. And that involved uh, being uh, search warrants having to be required to uh, do electronic uh, searches by law enforcement. In other words, law enforcement wants to search electronic data by uh, four uh, individuals or corporations. They've got to get a search warrant from a judge. Uh, what was the voter turnout? It was about five and a half million, which is an all-time record. It is not as high as many people were predicting. Some people predicted 5.8, some even 6 million, which would have really shattered the record, which was set back in 2008, about 5 million in the election that uh, elevated Barack Obama to the White House. And out of that 5.5 million, some 3.3 million were absentee voters. So we could go on. There are other races to discuss. Uh, the educational board posts, they were interesting. And we've got a couple of guests who may touch on those and we'll keep the conversation going. But a lot of activity on Tuesday, all of it very exciting here in the state of Michigan. Please stay tuned. We've got more. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have someone who has been our guest before, John Cuvion, and he is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, with JMC Analytics and Polling. John Cuvion, thanks for returning to The Political Insider. Thank you. Good to be on your show. Well, John Cuvion, you look at everything, not just in Louisiana, but nationally, regionally, certainly in the South. How do you read what happened this week? And I should say, what is happening right now right. and what may happen going forward? Certainly. So I look at the, there's really several dimensions to what happened uh, Tuesday night. The first is, I do believe the die is cast in terms of Joe Biden receiving the necessary 270 electoral votes to become president. If you look at the one, two, three, four, five, six states that are being about to be called, only two of them, Alaska and North Carolina, do I feel confident that President Trump will win those states. Georgia, it, believe it or not, the Trump margin is rapidly dwindling down. It's 13,000 as we're on the show right now, and there's still more areas in Democratic counties to be counted in Pennsylvania, what started out with approximately a 600,000 vote lead on election night has dwindled down to 109,000 for Trump. And there are 350,000 votes left to be counted when I checked with the Secretary of State an hour ago. And the thing about those 350,000 votes is they roughly break three to one Democratic. So that is taking care of four of the states. And the remaining two, what's happening is that Joe Biden is clinging to a 70,000-vote lead in Arizona, and I think it's more likely than not he will carry that state. 
And finally, when we're talking about the state of Nevada, they resumed counting today, and Joe Biden has already seen his lead expand by 10,000. And given that the vote is overwhelmingly concentrated in Las Vegas, which is a Democratic city, I would expect Joe Biden to carry that as well. So the bottom line for president is I see multiple paths for Joe Biden to get to 270 electoral votes. He will be victorious, however, without any sort of electoral mandate from Congress. In other words, the Republicans are keeping the Senate, albeit with a small loss. In the House, the Republicans have thus far picked up three, a net of three seats, and I see them potentially looking at getting nine to 11 more seats. So in other words, this is certainly not the blue wave that we saw in 2008 when Barack Obama was overwhelmingly elected president. Yeah, right. Let me ask you about the two Georgia Senate races. Uh, One of them surely is headed for a runoff between Warnock, the Democrat, and uh, Representative, excuse me, Senator Leffler, who is the incumbent Republican, uh, because neither reached 50 percent, which you have to get. But what about the other race? Purdue has been slightly over 50 percent. He's the Republican incumbent. He's being challenged by John Ossoff. But if Trump's lead is diminishing in the presidential race, I would think Purdue's lead would be diminishing, even though he may finish ahead of Ossoff, he won't be at 50 percent. And that would mean there'd be a special election there, too. Correct. In fact, as we speak, his his percentage has just slipped below 50 So it is entirely possible, and I would say in the more likely than not category right now, that you would be talking about two Senate runoffs, which would not occur until January. Wow. So, I mean, uh, literally the Senate will be, I mean, it'll be 50-48 for two months. (laughs) This is going to be agony. Uh, (laughs) And the worst part is, imagine living in the state of Georgia where you're about to be bombarded with a volume of TV ads and mail and such that has not been seen since that infamous uh, sixth congressional district special election three years ago. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that is incredible. Well, now, look, I'm just kind of curious. What about Louisiana? Did anything strange happen in Louisiana this year? Or was it kind of true to form what you would have expected? True to form, basically what happened was President Trump received the same 58% of the vote that he received uh, four years ago. And our incumbent Republican Senator Bill Cassidy got reelected with 59% against 14 opponents. And all of the Republican incumbents and the Democratic incumbent were easily reelected. And the one race that's going into a runoff will be a two-Republican race. So point being was there was really no shades of blue in Louisiana this year. Well, let's say we have a Biden administration going forward with a divided Congress, a reduced Democratic majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, and maybe a sliver uh, control of the U.S. Senate by the Republicans What do you think that portends? What it means is that basically, unlike Barack Obama in 2009, who had secure Democratic majorities, Joe Biden will not be able to push through a whole bunch of ideologically aggressive legislation. And so he's going to have to cut deals, and it enhances the power of the five to ten centrist on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, that's true. Uh, And maybe that's a happy development, right? I think it's good from the standpoint of tempering any expectations that there's a mandate. And you certainly do not want to have uh, this massive legislation that was pushed through in one year back in 2009. So I think that, you know, you're going to have a, a more of a divided government situation. 
and Mitch McConnell holds a lot of the cards. If you yeah. think about it, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me ask you about polling this year. <laughs> I mean, uh, we have been wringing our hands for the last four years over the polls in 2016, and I must say the pollsters, I think, made some pretty good excuses for their performance. They said, you know, nationally we had the popular vote, you know, maybe 3%. Uh, it was yeah. kind of like within the margin of error. We just were not quite as accurate in some of these swing states. But I got to say, John Cuvion, I thought their performance this year was much worse than 2016. I mean, in Michigan, it was terrible. And I mean, there were races. I mean, Susan Collins up in Maine, we were told she was dead meat, you know, for the last three months. And she ends up winning in a blowout. I mean, how could they get it so wrong? You know, it's it's unfortunate that it was as bad as it was. And the thing was, you had a couple of pollsters, and I'm thinking specifically of the one in Iowa, uh, Ann Selzer and Trafalgar, where they were pretty much the only pollsters that went against the grain in terms of what their numbers were showing. And they were routinely laughed out and mocked for their numbers. And lo and behold, they presented something that was closer to the truth. I have two thoughts about that. I mean, fortunately, you know, (laughs) subtle brag here, all of the races I polled, I was happy with the results. But having gotten past that, the way I look at the debacle that has occurred is this. Number one, I never bought into this idea that because you didn't poll enough uh, high school-educated people that that meant that you had a bad poll. That was the excuse they used in 2016, and so the polling industry went too far in the other way to try to correct the problem, and it didn't do any better. So that's number <laughs> one. <laughs> and uh, so, that, so that to me is kind of a very major polling miss. The other thing, too, is I'm of the opinion now that if you are talking about a controversial personality, and I'm referring, of course, to President Trump, I think that the notion of asking either if you think that candidate will win or if you think their neighbor, your neighbors will vote for him, even though that idea, as unconventional as it was, was mocked in media circles, I do think that needs to be given some credence. Because the thing about a controversial figure is a lot of people are reluctant to tell a pollster who they truly are for, specifically if that pollster is a live operator. And so I think you have to start finding indirect ways to get to the same information. Yeah, I've heard that before from another pollster, and I think that's very insightful of you. And I want to thank you, John Kuvion. You've done a great job of looking at the big picture and going over some of these really key battlegrounds around the country and in Louisiana. Thank you so much, John Kuvion. My pleasure. We'll be back in a minute with more. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have with us an old friend, Mark Grebner, who has been just about everything involving analyzing Michigan elections over the years. Uh, He is with Practical Political Consulting, and he is also an elected Ingham County Commissioner. Mark Grebner, thanks for your return to the Political Insider. Thanks for allowing me to come back, Uh, keep out of my little hole, into the light. (laughs) You will always be welcome in our light. Now, let me just ask you just a broad question. How do you view what happened this week, finally, now that the election is finished, at least in terms, supposedly, of votes being cast? 
and what's going on now and what's likely to go on in the next few days or weeks? What does it all mean? Tell us. Well, obviously, the headline event is that Joe Biden has defeated Trump and that we're going to have a new president. And the new president is going to be confronted with a Congress that is this pretty much the same as it was and a Supreme Court that is ever so much uh, more Republican. And in the state, we're, we have the same situation we had, except suddenly we have a Democratic Supreme Court. So, I mean, the political situation has just shifted a few inches uh with the 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 only major shift is of course uh, the 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 removal of of our orange menace. <laughs> well, I will say it's amazing with all the hullabaloo of the last four years, and particularly of the last year, we end up in pretty much the same place, except as you say, a change in the presidency. But everything else is remarkably similar to what we've seen the last couple of years, anyway. Right. The, the, that's right. It, it was surprising, really, how stable partisanship is, how very few people are persuadable about anything, and how very much after 30 years of people talking about uh, the end of partisanship and the rise of the independent voter, we can't find these independent voters. They don't exist at all anymore. So what we have is people who will stand with their party absolutely no matter what, and uh Two or three or four percent of the population appear to be persuadable. Uh, one of the one of the things that I come away with, I just think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from this. One of them is that if if Donald Trump had been just a hair less insane, he would have been reelected. <laughs> I mean, I don't think the public would have demanded much from him. I mean, not going into Michigan and and suggesting that his followers kidnap the governor who has just been threatened with a kidnap plot. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know, that isn't asking a lot, right? Going into Wisconsin, which has about the highest uh, COVID-19 infection rates in the country, and, and you know, like, you know, ostentatiously not wearing a mask and kind of urging uh, infection and destruction in the masses, if he had just abstained from that, he might have carried Wisconsin. I mean, he wasn't that far off the mark anywhere. Yeah. It, it, so anyway, just it just says that really... The Democrats got lucky here in our in our in our opposition because we might not have been able to beat anybody else. Yeah, that's a good point. What about the coronavirus? Do you think if Trump had handled that better, in, at least in terms of public perception of how he was handling it, that alone, uh, despite what else he might have said or done over four years, would have been enough to reelect him? It certainly would have brought the whole thing into doubt. I and mean, it's hard to calculate exactly what went on, but the fact that, that seniors, after being a predominantly Republican group, seem to have broken toward the Democrats, that tells you that some votes actually shifted, and it was probably on the coronavirus issue. I mean, the issue being that he has not just managed it badly, but he's kind of off the charts how badly he's managed it. So that turned out to affect 2 or 3 or 4% of the entire electorate, and the other 96% we're steady as she goes. It's it's an amazing thing. It's just, you know, it really says that America is divided in half and that all we can really hope for on our side or on the other side is to wait for the other people to die <laughs> because we ain't persuading nobody. Well, um, it's 
everything you say is absolutely true. But, you know, honestly, going into the election, if you looked at the polls, and I want to ask you about polls in a minute, and if you look at the way the news media presented the election, I mean, it looked like it was going to be a blue wave election. And it looked like the Republicans were in terrible trouble everywhere, not just nationally, but here in Michigan. And it didn't turn out that way. It was very close. And the Republicans actually scored some major successes nationally. And even here in Michigan, they actually kept on to the state house of representatives. Uh, Most people thought they were going to lose it. And they certainly probably would have lost it if Trump had been buried by Joe Biden, but he wasn't buried. So how do you account for that? Well, two things in the first place, because partisanship has hardened and because independents have disappeared, the range of possibilities has changed. I mean, Jim Blanchard was reelected with 70 percent of the vote in 1986. Right. And, and, and that was, of course, a blowout, but it was a blowout by, by 38 points or something like that. Yeah, it was huge. Well, and, and today a blowout would be nine points, right? That's what we were talking about. <laughs> right. Maybe Biden would blow out by... So our, our, our range of thought is, divide, is reduced by about four. Barry Goldwater got, what, 39, 40 percent of the vote. Yeah, right. Barry, I don't know, five, six yeah. states. Yeah. McGovern yeah. got, you know, 38, 39 percent of the vote. Right. In, in a terrible loss. Well, today maybe McGovern is uh, Bernie, and maybe Bernie would have lost to Trump by two percentage points. So, so the first thing is that we're, we're just talking about a very narrow field of play. And and within that, a typical polling error, not based on the sample size, but just that polls are wrong in, in a given year in one direction or the other, and we only find out afterwards, they're wrong by three or four percentage points, and that's all that happened here, right? Uh, you know, Biden went in supposedly up seven or eight, and it looks like he'll be up three or four when all the dust settles. Yeah, it's well, true. It's true, but, uh, I mean, I think the difference is, that four years ago when they were predicting the pollsters that a three to four percent advantage for Hillary and it ended up being a cliffhanger like zero to zero tie with Trump narrowly winning this time, as you said, the poll shows seven, eight percent. So Biden seemed to have a cushion uh, compared to and Hillary he and he did he, have he, a cushion. So even though cushion. he eroded at the end, he won by about the same amount. But still, I think, and and you know what? The pollsters can say right now, they can say, we were right. We said Biden would win, and he did win. And, you know, whatever the percentage, we weren't that bad. And they could say, we said Peters was going to win, and he won. So we were right. But, I mean, I don't think the public is going to go away feeling that way. Well, uh, in the first place, I have no uh, intention of of convincing the public to to understand or know anything. That's not my goal. (laughs) I, I, I speak only to elitists and people who, like, have a clue. And and so if the public happens to listen on this, they, they're free to be insulted. Okay. Um, the other thing is I think that Nate Silver and 538 really do, do sum up the, the wisdom of our age. And, you know, Nate was saying one of the very real possibilities there is that Biden is elected, but that, that the seven or eight points that we give him, falls down to four or five points and it's just barely enough because with the electoral college you know that yeah that, that a democrat needs to have three anyway yeah remember hillary did not get a tie i mean you just said zero to zero hillary won by three percentage points 
No, no, no. I'm not talking bigger. nationally. I, I'm talking about here in Michigan. I mean, oh, wait, I, Trump, I'm sorry. Trump yep. won by 10,700 votes. It was virtually a tie. That's right, all I'm right. saying. Yeah. Right. And, and, and by the end, you know, individual state polls are often off by that much. Oh, it's yeah. not a shock. Yeah. The, the, the problem is that polling is much more useful if we have a wide field of play. If somebody's going to lose, like Bill Lucas did, yeah. and get 31% of the vote, you know, you can poll and you can be off by five points and hell, he gets 36 and who cares, right? Yeah, right. No, but, you're right. But the thing is, if somebody's at 48 and, and Trump never went below 42, you know, I mean, so he's, he reigned from 41 to 44 over the last 18 months. That was his right. entire reign, right? Right, right. And, and if he's then off, if the poll is off by three or four percentage points, and he has a built-in three percentage point advantage in the electoral college. Yeah, it means that he's always in 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 play. He's always got a shot. Right. Okay. Listen, so. we we will take a brief break, Mark Rebner, and we will be back in a minute with more from Mark Rebner. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Mark Brebner of Practical Political Consulting and elected Ingham County Commissioner. By the way, congratulations. You were reelected, right? I was. I was. How did things turn out on the Ingham County Board? Uh, was the composition the same after the election as before, Republican-Democrat? It was exactly unchanged because Ingham has become so democratic that Republicans simply can't run anywhere in the urban or suburban area, and they control exactly the rural seats, and we can't touch them there. So we have just settled down into like a permanent armed warfare. It's kind of like the North <laughs> Korean, South Korean DMZ, you know. <laughs> we have little barbed wire, and we have bullhorns at the, at the border, and we occasionally shout slogans at them. <laughs> Okay, well, let me ask you about the U.S. Senate race between uh, incumbent Democrat Gary Peters and John James, the Republican nominee. I mean, how do you look at that race, you know, compared to Trump-Biden? Are they tied together, joined at the hip as races? However, one was going to go, the other was going to go the same way? Well, uh, it always looked like Peters was about one percentage point weaker than Biden. So, so his, because that also meant that James was one percentage point stronger than Trump, it always meant that the margin for Peters would be about two points lower than the margin for Biden. So for Peters to win, Biden had to carry the state by more than two points. Unfortunately for the Democrats, he did. He carried it by what looks like three points or 2.6 or something, which was just barely enough to get to drag Gary across the uh, finish line. The, the, the lesson, as I was saying in the first segment, is that there's, there's no independent vote anymore. There are no ticket splitters. That we're down to really just a handful of percent that you can even fight over because everybody else just is voting their ticket, their, their preferred political party. And so Peters was always tied to the Democratic performance in the state. And then his goal as a, as a candidate was to run even with or a little bit ahead of the ticket. He didn't manage to do that. Even as an incumbent, he ran just a one percentage point behind. But the ticket dragged him across the finish line. And, and there you have it. Yeah, let me ask you about straight ticket voting. We had such controversy about that over the last couple of decades, whether it was going to be legal, whether it was going to be outlawed. Um, has anybody done a study uh, to show whether, in fact, straight ticket voting, we don't 
you know, obviously have enough data right now to analyze this year, but let's say analyze it gubernatorial year like 2018 or the last presidential election compared to, let's say, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Has anybody done a study showing that straight ticket voting is either increasing or staying the same as a percentage of the total electorate or what? Uh, I have not seen such a study, but, but to get wonky on you, we have to distinguish between two different ideas that have the same name. There's straight ticket voting, meaning people vote for their party. And that is true now in Michigan for about 90 or 92 percent of all voters. But there's also straight ticket voting, meaning single action straight ticket voting on the ballot. And it appears to me that only half the voters uh, cast a single vote by voting the, uh, their partisan, by filling in the oval for their party at the top. It turns out half of the straight ticket voters prefer to go in and, and enjoy one by one, filling in, like filling in a crossword puzzle, filling in all of the ovals for all of their candidates. And, and who knows, maybe voting against one candidate in their ticket. But, but we have single action straight ticket voting, which is what we fought over. And, and that doesn't really make much difference as far as candidates like Peters and, and members of Congress. The, the main impact of single action straight ticket voting is way down the ticket on people you've never heard of that it, it greatly helps the party, the, the, the candidate of the stronger party. Let's say in a, in a Republican township, if you're running for township trustee, you are greatly protected if there is single-action straight-ticket voting if you're the Republican because, because all the Republicans vote for you automatically without even knowing who you are. If, if you had to get those votes on your own, people who don't, who've never heard of you may skip you. And so it is easier to pick off weak members of the majority party if we don't have straight single action straight ticket voting, they're end of wonky interlude. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, back to polling again. Let me just ask you this, and I think you may have even been involved in some poll in West Michigan. I mean, there were polls that showed that uh, Peter Meyer in the third congressional district, the Republican nominee, was in real trouble against Democrat Hillary Scolton. And it looked like he was trailing and he was going to lose. I mean, he ended up winning comfortably. And yep. and down in the 6th District, uh, Fred Upton was supposed to be in a cliffhanger uh, against John Hoadley, the Democrat, and uh, he ended up just blowing Hoadley away. I mean, something was missing there, wasn't there? What was what was yep. going yep. on? I did a poll uh, for Murr's newsletter in which I reported two things. First, that it appeared to me from my poll that um, Sheldon had a big lead on Meyer, and the second thing is I reported that I didn't believe my poll. I saw that. Um, and, and so I'm pleased to say that my belief was better than my polling. <laughs> um, it, you know, I found over and over again that we were having trouble getting Republicans to answer questions. So it may be it's not exactly the shy Trump voter, although it might be that it's it's sort of the shy Republican that they were just dodging polls, not just mine, but other people's, too. And that may be one of the reasons that, that the polls were generally off in the United States by a few percentage points, overestimating Biden's percentage. I mean, we're just having trouble getting Republicans to answer polling questions. Yeah. I, why that is, and maybe it's hatred of the media, or it just, it just isn't clear to me. Well, I think you put your finger on it. It's uh, paranoia among a lot of these Republicans that everybody's out to smear them and shame them and get them and the news media and the Democrats and everybody else, and they just... Uh, button up. They won't answer, uh, you know. But anyway, let's turn the page to the state Supreme Court. How important is it, in your opinion, you're an attorney, uh, that the Democrats finally 
finally, in an election, got control of the Supreme Court for the first time in over two decades. I mean, they had it briefly for a few months in 2010, but that was because of an appointment by Governor Jennifer Granholm, and it was quickly erased. But, I mean, they actually got it in an election. So is that likely to have a major impact going down the road? Well, it's kind of one of the underplayed stories is that the Supreme Court was firmly in Republican hands. By Republican, I mean political hack hands. I mean, Cliff Taylor and Markman and those folks, uh, Bob Young. I mean, people who were just real Republican partisans and who were kind of ruthless in their use of their power. It shifted during Snyder's administration because of his appointments to people who were not ruthless partisans. And so the Republicans kind of lost their ability to, to pull in votes. In fact, you could see that in the, uh, the Supreme Court upholding the independent redistricting plan uh, that the Republican Party just threw a tantrum because it thought that it had four votes and could block it as if, you know, like you were talking about a city council and, you know, what we endorsed four of the candidates for city council. Where are our four votes? <laughs> and and they couldn't because Clement and Viviano are sort of independent. They, they, you know, they, they think for themselves. So I wouldn't even say it's a four to three Supreme Court. I would say it's four Democrats, two Republicans who are sort of reasonable and one remaining, uh, you know, uh, bizarre, uh, uh, basically a bitter partisan, uh, you know, a hardcore partisan. So it, that's going to make a lot of difference going forward, really just because the, the court comes to all kinds of questions, political questions, questions involving insurance liability, involving rights and, and all sorts of things from a from a more liberal and uh, kind of broader perspective. Um, well, now it, it's going to make a lot of difference. But we had that during the, the 70s and 80s as well. I mean, we had we had a very uh, liberal Supreme Court. I mean, it was, you know, basically the, the court of Charles Levin and the Kavanaugh's. Well, are you sure, though, that, you know, Justice McCormick and now it's going to be Welch and uh, Kavanaugh and Richard Bernstein are, you know, as equitable and judicious and fair minded as you imply? I mean, simply because they're not, you know, partisan Republicans that does that make them acceptable mainstream or would the Republicans and maybe even independents look at them and say, hey, these people are Democratic hacks. They're liberal I, hacks. I'm, I'm sure that nothing in the previous statement, if you read back the transcript, <laughs> I never said that the Democrats were not partisan hacks. I said that two of the Republicans are not partisan hacks. Okay. okay? So, so you think so they are? Viviano, well, I what, never said a word about well, our Well, court. what about Bernstein? The fact that he... I think that they're reasonable is probably a sign that they're partisan hacks because I'm a partisan <laughs> hack and I like their rulings. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you at least admitted it. That, I mean, that's important. That's very important. What about uh, these educational board seats? They're always interesting to me because they depend so much on what happens at the top of the ticket. I, I think Democrats won five of the eight. We have hardly any time, but what do you say? I, I always just use them as uh, an indication of the exact state of the partisan ballot, the partisan strength in each area, because people generally vote for them having no clue who they are. And so it, it's voting for candidates completely on the basis of political prejudice. It's just perfect distilled prejudice in a single number. I really like them. <laughs> well, listen, Mark Grebner, you're always good for not only insights, but a lot of humor and really appreciate your being on. Thank you very much for your reading of what happened this week and what's going on now, what's happening going forward. Thank you, Mark Grebner. 
and thank you for daring to let me on the air again. Oh, it's no dare. I mean, it's always a pleasure. You're always a great success. Thank you, and we will be back next week, folks, with still more. <laughs>